From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 218 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting as Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, happy spring. Yes, it's uh, we're starting to thaw out here from all that snow that Florida constantly gets. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, we, I think it hit eighty four here today. We are we are already in the eighties, and it's funny because we were in the sixties last week. That's just <laughs> how it goes here in the Sacramento Valley. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but I'm I'm ready for spring. I planted my um, seeds. If people follow me on my personal Facebook page, you know I've been planting seeds and puttering around in the garden. And so excited because my seeds are starting to come up. So, you know, I planted some vegetable seeds. And um, I planted a whole tray of carnation seeds, dianthus seeds. Um, just to see how they do, because they're really for Zone 8, and I'm in Zone 9. But they're popping up, so I'm really excited about that. And I'm trying to grow carrots, which they say is really difficult. But I have a huge raised bed inside my greenhouse, and I'm sure I'm going to post photos. But uh, but I've posted photos before of it, and so I've I um, put in seeds. And everybody always says, you know, when you're just starting out planting seeds, don't do carrots. So I thought, okay, this is my second year. So I can, um, I'll experiment. So I'm, you know, I keep it covered in newspaper and to keep, you know, and water it down to keep the grass, the, you know, the soil moist underneath it. Cause it's, look, it was a hundred degrees in the greenhouse today. I bought a thermometer for wow. <laughs> and, um, and the vents automatically open and all that. So I have to get a fan for in there, but I am so excited. I, looked up the paper today i have little carrots starting to come up oh how nice yeah so i'm very excited i'm definitely in into spring we're delighted to welcome back disney historian and author marcy kariker smothers who previously joined us to talk about her book eat like walt Marcy has recently authored two new books, Delicious Disney, Walt Disney World, and the book we're going to talk about, Walt's Disneyland, A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney. Marcy, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Hi, Craig. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me back. Always a joy, fun, pleasure, magical time. (laughs) I agree. It's always great to talk with you. Um, Now, there have been a lot of books written about Disneyland over the decades. So how is Walt's Disneyland, A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney, different from all those other books? It's just a great question. And it brings me back to something that happened during Eat Like Walt, which is when Marty Sklar introduced me to Tony Baxter. Tony's reaction is, what is there possibly left 
to write <laughs> about Walt Disney, you know. <laughs> so, you know, luckily I wasn't really easily deterred. And I explained that it was a look at the culinary history of Disneyland and uh, food was just a lens at which to look through, look at Walt Disney, the human being. So now with this book, what is there possibly left to write about Disneyland? Well, there are some really, really excellent fact-based books, but my intention while there are a lot of facts and 13,000 words and endnotes, uh, uh, is that I wanted it to be in Walt's words and the people that built and create Disneyland with them, a tour through the founder's eyes. That has never been done, and that's what I think makes it different. And then I'd like to add is that what was really important to me, again, it's filled with facts. You know, a Disney edition book is pretty serious stuff when you're entering it into history. But I wanted it to be more about feelings, the feeling that Walt wanted you to have when you walk through the turnstiles and under the railroad tracks, the feelings we all have when we're inside the firm, and to even get those feelings if you couldn't be in Disneyland. So it's emotional to me as much as it is uh, factual. And it is. I, I agree with you that because we're hearing it, as you said, from Walt and those who worked with him, it does evoke emotions that a fact-based book doesn't. You also have some wonderful photos in here, uh, many of which I've never seen before. And I I have a lot of books on Disneyland. <laughs> <That's laughs> <what I> <laughs> thank you. I have Michael Buckoff and the Walt Disney Archives Photo Library to help to thank for helping me because it was, you know, I don't want to go too much into it, but, you know, it was pandemic time. You know, I had started the book uh, in 19 and I had early 19. So I had been to the archives and had a lot of scans, thank goodness. But when the archives was closed for nearly two years, you know, it was a different way of finding images. And I want to again thank Mike Buckoff because I write morning, noon and night and I have these crazy ideas. Like, can you find this? Can you find that? And you know what? He did. So, <laughs> well, did a great job with it. Now, speaking of feelings. When comparing Disneyland with the Magic Kingdom, we Disneylanders often say you can feel something special about Disneyland because it's Walt's Park. And we have a lot of listeners who have never been to Disneyland. So how would you describe to someone who's never visited Disneyland about what makes it unique from the Magic Kingdom and why it's worth a visit? Well, you know, I, I like to say that one can feel Walt's DNA there. I mean, it is because he's there, worked there, played there, and things that he had so much to do with are there, and you can see them, touch them, read about them. But I also feel that, you know, Walt Disney World is just very different, um, and I have a gigantic appreciation for Walt Disney World more and more as time goes on. I look at Disneyland as the crown jewel. Walt only knew about what he was then calling Disney World, um, before Roy called it Walt Disney World, as being two parks, two Disney parks in the entire world. He didn't know that we're going to have six, you know, across the, you know, across the globe. And this is the, again, I refer to Disneyland, the crown jewel being the original Magic Kingdom, which I know sometimes confuses people, but I'm always pretty careful to say the original Magic Kingdom versus Walt Disney World to me, which is like a treasure chest. It is abundant. It's overflowing. And I have found touches of Walt here and there. That's like for another podcast. But I really look for the touches of Walt throughout those four parks and the resorts there too, because Walt is, he's there, he's tucked in little places, whereas at Disneyland, he's ubiquitous. Whether you know where to look, that's even better. But if you don't know where to look, they make it obvious to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially well, we'll have 
I have to say, I'm sorry, excuse me, but I think the app is great because for people that haven't been to Disneyland, it will say this is an original attraction that Walt has Walt had uh, something to do with. So I think that's very helpful too. Yes, absolutely. And we'll have to have you back to talk about where we can find Walt at Walt Disney World because I know our listeners would love that too. Um, now, Walt was already a successful storyteller and studio mogul. So why did he take the risk of creating Disneyland that was so outside of the box of what a film studio did at that time? That's an interesting question. And the first thing I'm going to say is what Diane Disney Miller always told, I'm sure you, Michael, as a you know historian, asked all historians is never to speculate or pause it. You know? So if I don't know that answer through a direct quote uh, or something that I've read in the archives or an interview with Walt, I hesitate to say why he would take a risk. But to me, my impulse is to react. It didn't seem like a risk to Walt. It seemed like a sure thing. He had tremendous confidence in it along the way. And he didn't seem to mind, you know, selling his home and asking people and making deals to finance it. So I look at this as like another thing that he totally believed in. And he, you know, that's one of my favorite quotes. It's on the back of the book, you know, and I, I kept insisting I want this amusement park. And everybody says, you know, what's he want an amusement park for? And I don't know. I couldn't think of a good reason except that, uh, I don't know. I wanted it. Yes. <laughs> so, so to answer your question, I just think he wanted it. And yeah. that's why we have Disneyland. Yeah. Now, you have a lot of quotes from Walt in the book. And one that I really liked was Walt saying that Disneyland is a state of mind. So for you, how would you describe what that is? I think that's what we all refer to as coming home. You know, again, we get inside the berm and I actually have goosebumps right now talking about it. Um, It makes me a little teary eyed. We get inside Disneyland and it is exactly what you know Walt had intended that it would be safe it would be fun it would be a great place for friends and family and so the state of mind to me is that you are transported to a place uh, physically and emotionally and all your senses are on fire when you're at Disneyland mm-hmm. absolutely I love, I love that quote too because it is a state of mind I mean look at social media now you see a lot of people saying I'm going to Disney for my mental health I mean really that's I mean that's a hashtag you know, I need to go to Disney because I'm sad. I'm going to Disney to get happy. I'm going for whatever reason, you know, not just vacation, birthdays and celebrations, because it is a state of mind and it still is a state of mind. Absolutely. And I think for I know for me, when I walk down Main Street, I just feel like, I don't know, a great weight has been lifted from my shoulders when I'm there because you can just put aside all your cares and just get immerse yourself in the fantasy and the magic and just the the extraordinarious <laughs> that's not a real <laughs> word but extraordinarious okay. of the park yeah just i mean even that idea like rolly crumb had the a quote in the la times several years ago he said you know that disneyland has charm freaking charm and disneyland hugs you that mm-hmm. is another one of my favorite quotes is the hugging it does feel like it's one big giant hug it does. I agree. Yeah, he said that on the show um, years ago. Yeah. yeah. So what I'd like to do is take a walk through Disneyland with you and Walt as our guides to give our listeners an idea of what they can learn from your book, Walt's Disneyland, Walk in the Park with Walt Disney. And what are some ways we can connect with Walt in his park? Where can we find him? So 
For Walt, the show began with how guests entered Disneyland, starting with the parking lot, the turnstiles, and the grand entrance. Can you tell us maybe a couple of places where where we can find Walt there as we enter Disneyland? Well, I mean, even from the outside of Disneyland, if you're facing the gates and you look at the left and there is that souvenir stand, it still is there. Walt put it there because when Disneyland was closed, depending on the time of year, Mondays, Tuesdays, or both, he knew that if people came all the way to Disneyland and it was closed, they'd be disappointed. So he put that souvenir stand there so they would be able to buy something to say that they had been at Disneyland. So you don't even have to go into the gates to see Walt. Or to the right, the kennel, because Walt felt very strongly that he wanted the pets to be safe while their owners were inside the park. And then once you get inside, the floral Mickey now mini that's exciting for women's mm-hmm. history, you know, but really the train station, that is the marquee uh, for Disneyland and what better marquee and what says Walt more than trains. So that would, would that would be my answer for what he would call the lobby, the marquee, the beginning of the show. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the train station, we had a listener who's reading your book right now, Christopher, write me a question and asked on the sign on opening day. And you have a you have a two page photo of it in your book. It indicates the train station with the with the E.P. Ripley in the station and the um, the floral Mickey's not yet been completed. So it's a great photo. Um, and it says population 5 million. And Christopher wanted to know how did they come up with 5 million? And I actually, when I was doing my series, 60 Years of Disneyland, I tried to research this. The only answer I could come up with is that that I could find was some obscure notation that Walt thought it was a good round number. Did you ever... In in your your research, ever come up with a better answer to that? <laughs> no, I definitely don't have a better answer or an answer. I actually, I think I say in the book, you know, isn't it kind of funny that an opening day of Disneyland, you know, no one was in the park, but the sign already said 5 million. I mean, of course, 55 being the year, there's a five. We do know that Walt liked numbers. Uh, his mm-hmm. family personally told me that. Uh, however, I do not know the answer. I wish I did. I and please, anybody that finds out, go to my website and, <laughs> and email me. <laughs> yes, well, yes. So <laughs> now, now, Marcy, what when you walk into Town Square, what is the first thing that you do? You know, do, are there any emotions that come over you? Anything like that? Very much so. Uh, I would say the first thing is I look up at Walt's apartment. Mm-hmm. No, and. Uh, and then very often I go to Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln being, you know, one of the first attractions because I really feel you connect with Walt for, for all the reasons that you know and your listeners know, being a World's Fair attraction. And Abe, Abraham Lincoln being one of Walt's, if not Walt's favorite president. And, yeah, no, I mean, I really do. And also, you know, that long view of Sleeping Beauty Castle and, again, that sense of being hugged and being inside this special magical place for sure. Now, I do write about, we can talk about later, the flagpole and the flag retreat is very important to me, um, but I usually don't arrive at the afternoon, so that's not the first thing I go to. But I try to go to flag retreat um, every single time I'm in the park. So do I. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's wonderful that they still do that. 
And and I agree. We always have to pay our respects to Walt. I think a lot of Disneylanders do that. We sort of a tip of the, you know, sort of a little salute when you walk into the park towards his apartment. And a lot of people do at the end of the day yes, as well sure. when they leave. I love all the stories of Walt staying in a park overnight, walking around Main Street, chatting with cast members, you know, opening up the sun-kissed citrus house to make orange juice. I mean, he really treated it like it was his hometown when Uh, he was in the park. I I think that, you know, that's probably what you were saying earlier about how Main Street makes you feel is that, you know, it's how Walt really believed. Marty Sklar had shared this with me, and I put it in it like Walt that when Disneyland was being built, it was like now early July and Marty was working on the Disneyland news and he couldn't believe, and he was, you know, in UCLA, a student, and he just couldn't believe that Walt Disney was coming by the office all the time asking how this newspaper was doing, you know. And Marty said, it, it occurred to me later, it was because every small town in America had a newspaper and this was small, Walt's small American town and it was going to have a newspaper too, right? So... You know, when it comes to things like walking around in the, you know, in the early mornings or sleeping over or going to what I like to say this, when the Sunkist Citrus House was in existence, that was because when Disneyland opened, Walt didn't have the bandwidth to operate any of the feeding operations, as he called them. So everything was a less leased out. And while he didn't own Sunkist, he would technically be breaking in, right? Because it was <laughs> business, you know. But he would go back behind the counter and he would play with the extractors and make his orange juice. And, of course, he would leave coins on the counter because he paid for absolutely everything at Disneyland. And then he would, you know, walk around or go back up to his apartment. And when the manager of Sunkiss got wind of that, while going back, he said, you know what? Called the secretary of the studio and said, I'll just put an extractor and oranges in Walt's apartment anytime he's coming to the park. And he did that. But Walt and Carrie had more fun breaking in. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also, you know, uh, Diane, his daughter, talks about how much he enjoyed going to what was then Aunt Jemima's Pancake House in Frontierland. Like that was kind of his neighborhood also. Not that all of Disneyland wasn't his, but that had, she referred to that as a second neighborhood for him. Mm, okay. So, and, and Walt was famous for his walks with park executives to discuss the park. And another unique trait of Walt's was that he also walked around the park and experienced it like a guest rather than like getting backdoored on attractions as is, you know, customary with executives, you know, today. And I just think it showed how much he cared about the guest experience. I think so. At so many levels, uh, he cared about the guest experience and also that he was able to understand what the guest would want. Uh, And he was right every single time that he would go in his disguises and listen to them, you know, uh, what the people were saying uh, during, you know, in queues and attractions, what they said after the attractions. That is also one of, I always say that, one of my favorite stories, but uh, among my favorite stories when he was in Peter Pan, and I guess he was talking to the guests and kind of previewing what the ride was like and telling some tidbits and they got off and, but he was in disguise and they got off and they said, wow, you really knew a lot. That, that really, you're, you're sharing those stories made the ride so much better and then he's like Walt Disney you know <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and like he would say who he was it's like I've got other stories like that for the Walt Disney World book when Project X and Walt Disney World and trying to be anonymous but then you know he loved he didn't want to be recognized but he liked to be recognized but again to your point about the guest experience that's how you find out and I think you know that was the instructions he gave to people like John Hench and 
you know, I want you to go in the weekends and I want you to walk in the park and wait in line and pay attention to what's working and what's not working. And I think that part of when this was sort of Walt's research, also walking around the park and then he would know what to fix or what needed to be plussed and you would get that done, but you wouldn't do, wouldn't get that at the studio reading reports, would you? No, no, not at all. I, I love and I, and I believe this story is in your book, the one story where he's walking around doing with the executives talking about the park. And he just mentions casually how close a tree is to the path. And overnight, they and this was a big tree. They move it, what, 10 feet or something? <laughs> yeah, that, was a, that was such a great story. One of Evan's stories. Yeah. But they didn't want to put he, no, but he, he could notice the details and and he was so astute at that. And that's something, again, that John Hench had said that I just love is that Walt recognized that you you sense where you are with your feet, too, the soles of your feet. And so that's why, I mean, if you look down, it's very obvious when you change land, the, the, the concrete changes or, you know, what's even what you're walking on reflects exactly what the land is, just like the landscaping does. So. Uh, yes, remarkable that, and again, I go back to what would you learn reading reports? I have a story later that you learn about reading a report that I think is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories in the book, but that was, it's, it's so important. And he was the, I think the lastly, I'll say he's the audience as much as he was the showman. And he knew that. Yeah. Speaking of guest comfort, I mean, at the end of main street is the Haber central plaza. This was a design idea of Walt's and that was for guest comfort. So that they didn't have to walk too far to get to the different areas of the park. Yeah, for sure. He didn't want anyone to have sore feet. And, you know, in his research, you know, seeing other parks and how they were done, you know, he knew that he wanted to have that central hub. And I, I remember, at least when I started going to Disneyland, that is always where we would say you go if you get lost. Because mm-hmm. everyone can find your way back there. And it's also a place to rest and reflect. And obviously it is the portal to all the other lands. It's so many things. And now the home to the partner statue, which is so special. Yes, absolutely. So now a lot of people, when they arrive at the Central Plaza, they have a tradition of turning to the left or the right or going straight. Do you have a tradition as to what you like to do? do. I always go to Adventureland. And I I don't know because I'm a good, you know, follower and (laughs) and I'm going clockwise. I also love Adventureland and Walt Disney's. Enchanted Tiki Room is one of my favorite attractions. So I, you know, I I love, yeah, I definitely go. It's rare with guests. I will, friends, I should say, we usually go to Fantasyland. Uh, However, I always go, but by myself, I would say 199% of the time go left. What do you do, Michael? I tend to do the same. I, I, because I, I don't, I think I read somewhere once that that's how Walt envisioned people would move through the park was yeah. starting with Adventureland because that's sort of the time wise, that's sort of the first, uh, I guess, era. And then you end up in the future over in Tomorrowland. So that's what I tend to do. So, Craig, what about you when you're at Disneyland? Do you have a tradition? It all depends on what time I get into the park. Uh, I I do not usually start directly in Adventureland. A lot of times I will start in uh, Frontierland, but uh, or go all the way back to New Orleans Square since I love that area so much. Mm-hmm. But if I'm there for like early park entry or anything like that, 
I'm going straight to Fantasyland because I want to knock out Alice in Wonderland and the Storybook Land Canal Boats and all of those attractions that, you know, that it's you don't have Genie Plus or back in the day you didn't have Fast Pass with them and they are just so close together in the queue and they get really monotonous just seeing the same people going back and forth. So I like to get those <laughs> done first thing. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. If I, and I would add Peter Pan to that to, mm-hmm. if it's morning yeah, at rope drop. I mean, it is astounding, isn't it? That you can see Peter Pan with a you know, 90 minute wait. So if you ever see it, I know my daughter will text me if we're not even in the same places in the park. Hurry on up. You know, it's less than 20, 30 minutes. We got to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there in the morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you devote some pages in your book to something that is my favorite, and that's the Disney landscapes, because Walt considered the park's landscape, you know, pretty much as a character in the park. There's one, the one great book, the Evans book, the Flowers book about the um, the horticulture at Disneyland, and they used to have that tour. Did either of you ever take the horticulture? I did. I oh, loved it. I, I never got to do it, and I everyone told me it's the best. And every and I'm hoping now post COVID they'll bring it back. But yes, I mean landscape, and then there was no expense spared. I mean, like even you know, hear the stories. You know, some you know depending on how much of a geek you are, I guess a lot of people know that. Um, that Ron Dominguez, the former, the Disney legend has since passed away, his family home, was in this spot approximately where Pirates of the Caribbean is now. And mm-hmm. there was a palm tree that had been planted there, I believe, for his grandparents' anniversary, uh, dating back to the late 1800s. And when that property was sold, they asked if they could please save the tree. And it was the process of, I don't, uh, I believe it's called falling the tree to move it. You know, Evans talks about that. Bill Evans talks about that process of, moving that tree safely and of course now you should see of course and now it is uh, adjacent to what was the fast pass for uh, indiana jones adventure but there is that's the that's the second oldest thing at disneyland right is that tree yeah i always look for that tree o- over there and then do you always look for the little the little man at disneyland's um house i love him and i had him in the book and it's like with so many things sometimes you have to uh let go of a story, but I do think it's very sweet. And I love that it goes all the way back to 1955. Yes. Yes. I know. Uh, I remember when I first showed it to my um, granddaughter and the problem was is they had put trash cans in front of it. Oh. So I literally had to move trash cans in order to show her. And there was a cast member standing there and he realized what I was doing. So he let me do it. And I said, I'll put these back. <laughs> and then she saw it and, and all that. So, um, and you know, anyway. the, I was going to say about the landscaping also is how much Walt appreciated it would just get more beautiful, you know, and it, that mm-hmm. it was growing and, you know, just the investment in all of the beauty. I have that in the back of the book um, about one of the reasons why people thought that Disneyland will never work is Walt's, you know, ideas about landscaping. It's too expensive and nobody cares. Well, <laughs> I think we know now. It may be too expensive, but everybody cares and appreciates it. Oh, absolutely. I know sometimes when we were there with my family, and then my wife would turn around and say, where's your father? And and they would know it was because I'd stopped to take photos of the flower beds because I wanted the color combinations and all that so that I could um, I, I, I could see, okay, what flower, you know, what flowers work well together so I could, you know, do the same color combinations at home and all that. 
Now, let's move into Frontierland. And that was the largest of the realms um, when it when Disneyland opened. It was the perfect home for two of Walt's biggest television characters, Davy Crockett and Zorro. And and you could actually meet them there. Yeah. He was so <laughs> prescient about, you know, television shows coming to Disneyland, the movies. I mean, the same thing with Sleeping Beauty Castle. I think for a while there, it was considered to be Snow White Castle because it was his first princess. But then, you know, Sleeping Beauty would be coming out some years after Disneyland opened. He thought, oh, we should be, you know, let's pay attention to this princess. Same thing with his characters that were, you know, as you said, that you could meet in Frontierland. Mm-hmm. Now, you tell a story I have never heard before in your book, and that's the Waltz Dreaming Tree in the Lakota Village. Can you share that story with us? That's a good tree story. <laughs> I do have a lot of tree stories. So in Marceline, Walt's hometown in Missouri, even though he lived there a short amount of time, as many of your listeners know, Walt's identified his entire life with it as his hometown. In fact, you know, there's a story in an American original where Diane says they had no idea that he only lived there like four plus years, the way he talked about it. They thought he was, you know, raised there his entire life. Mm -hmm. So when he was in Marceline as a young boy, there was a tree there and his aunt Margaret used to give him some crayons and some sketch pads. And he and his sister Ruth would lie under this tree and he would draw and, and imagining. And he later on went to say directly to somebody I've spoken with, that was my dreaming tree. And Walt identified it as such, my dreaming tree. And so when there was a, so there exists, people could visit it in Missouri anytime in Marceline. And then it was struck by lightning and destroyed. So what the caretakers and the present, um, one of the founders of the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, who currently lives on the Disney farm in the home that Roy and Walt lived in, Kay Mallon's, Uh, She arranged with her team to have three saplings made from the original dreaming tree. So they planted another one on the farm and it's regrown beautifully and you can visit it now. There's a one that's somewhere that nobody knows it's hidden. And the third one was gifted to Disneyland by the Walt Disney hometown museum on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. And it was planted near the frontier in frontier land near the Mark Twain riverboat dock. And so about four years ago, three years ago, I guess it was 19, I was FaceTiming with my friend Kay saying, which one of the trees? She was, I don't know. Finally, I had a meeting with Kim Irvine and I asked her, where is the dreaming tree? It doesn't appear to still be at the Frontierland dock. And the best I could decipher from the distinction of what um, this particular type of tree looks like. And she put me in touch with the horticultural staff who wrote back to me and said, we've moved it. And it is now in the Lakota village behind the teepee. So that is one of only three dreaming trees in the world. Um, and like I said, the, the, the second one, no one knows where it is. Kay has it safely in case lightning strikes twice. I was very excited to find out that in the new Toontown remodel, they are, there's going to be a dreaming tree and imagine yes. dreaming tree. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Craig, Brody from the Orange County Register, I mean, Brady McDonald, excuse me, from the Orange County Register wrote to me and said, I didn't know about the dreaming tree. He didn't know either. And look, now they're putting it at, uh, you know, in Toontown. So I think it's a great full circle story. And it really meant a lot to Walt. And now that there's going to be a, a representation that young people can go to and, you know, where there'll be a placard and it'll be, it'll be on the app and everyone will know the story behind it just makes my heart sing. 
That'll be wonderful. Yeah, it will be. And now when I next time I ride the Mark Twain or the Columbia, I have to look for that tree. Or on the screen, <laughs> you can see it. Pardon me? You can also see it from the train. Oh, great. That's right. Because yeah. of the re, the re, the rerouting of it. I'm definitely going to look for it because you describe it pretty well in your book. Exactly. So uh, look for the heart shaped um, leaves. Yeah. Behind yeah. <laughs> oh, if I ever go to Marceline, I'll have to see if I can find a little acorn or something from it. And, <laughs> and yeah, you, you, you really hope you can get to Marceline. You have yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's on my bucket list. Now, now the last realm Walt was directly involved with was built along the rivers of America, and that's New Orleans Square. And for me and Craig, that is, uh, I think that's our favorite area of Disneyland. And the city of New Orleans figured prominently in Disneyland and Walt Disney World history for Walt. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that um, I just recently became friends with Tanya McKnight Norris. She's 84, and she worked with Walt um, designing New Orleans Square and Club 33. Uh, she traveled with Walt to New Orleans, also to the World's Fair. So I've had a little bit of insight um, with her after the book was published. Um, I think in a subsequent reprint, I might be able to add some more detail about that. But yes, Walt loved New Orleans, and that was his last land. The story that I'd like to share about uh, New Orleans Square is Pirates of the Caribbean, and something that made my jaw drop which was when Walt was uh, planning it, you know, and again, I want to be careful to say this because there's, we have all different ranges of people that love Disney. Some people are historians like you, others are annual pass holders that read everything. Many, many, many people are only going to go one time. So when you're writing a book like mine, which is intended to be a souvenir guide, and we can talk about that later, why it's paperback, not hardback. Um, it's intended to be a souvenir guide then some things I have to repeat that may be obvious to a lot of people or they've heard many, many, many more times, but this bears repeating, which is that when Walt was planning and his team was planning Pirates of the Caribbean and there wasn't enough room within Disneyland, Walt himself made the decision, well, we're just going to have to go under the railroad tracks and build a show building on the other side. So then the drop on the boat is really not for a thrill. It is the way to get you to the other side of the burn, Right. But when I was in the archives and I was reading an interview with Herb Ryman and he was talking about Walt said, OK, now we're going to go down. I have to go down 26 feet and you've got to figure out how to get him down there. So Walt said, excuse me. So Herbie says, well, here, I've got a boat. You know, they're screaming and they're laughing and they're getting splashed. And he says, no, you know, no, 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 no. Let me take those plans home. So Walt takes the plans home and he comes back the next day and he said, Herbie, I changed your idea. And again, guys, I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing now. Mm -hmm. Herbie, I've changed your idea. They're going to go down one time, but they're not going to go the whole way down. I have added a second drop. They'll never know it's coming. You know, <laughs> it was like <laughs> I just love that it was Walt that added that second drop, and strictly for uh, that was strictly for a thrill factor. And now every time I ride Pirates of the Caribbean, I think of Walt. You know, saying they'll, they'll never know it's coming. That'll get them. Whatever. You know, he was so excited about it. I know, it, I, and that's what I love. You, know, you always hear about how excited Walt was. It, he had like a very sort of boyishness to him in things that I've read in people that I've talked to who worked with him. And it's it's just so charming, you know. Yeah, to, I, to that. Not only boyish, but all, and, you know, enthusiastic and, could you know, knew, again, was the guest as much as he was the, or the audience as much as he was the showman. 
I think that also, you know, what I've learned in my research is how many people either told me personally or read about say he was just a human being. He was a human being. They feel they just want to say he was really a human being. You know, he didn't walk around. He didn't like uh, sick events. You know, he didn't like people that put on airs. And he was a pretty down to earth guy. Right. And but he was human. So I add that Mm -hmm. to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, there is something that I always look at because it's something that of Walt that he purchased for Disneyland that's in New Orleans Square and cuz I love eating at Cafe Orleans. And can you tell us the story of the espresso maker that's in there cuz I think people walk by it and have no idea of its connection to Walt. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that one. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I wrote about it and eat like, well, but here we have New Orleans and we have, which was then the Creole Cafe, Blue Bayou. And the best that Walt could do, I mean, he was really doing well by then with theming food, you know, 10 years after Disneyland and Hope, but 10 plus years. So here we have Creole Cafe and we don't have chicory coffee. (laughs) (laughs) No, we have espresso, but, you know, Italian espresso would have been, you know, the finest, still among the finest coffees in the world. And so he had a machine imported, a Pavoni machine imported and installed there at what was then the Creole Cafe, and it is still there. Now, here is something really interesting, and I'm going to share it for the first time. When I was with my friend, Tony McKnight Norris, who was there uh, when New Orleans Square was designed and built, he also did the gourmet shop, and we were at the Disneyland Hotel, and she points out the photo of Walt and the coffee machine. And she has read my book. And she said, that's not right. I said, what are you talking about? Because I designed that coffee maker for the Plaza Inn remodel. And I said, what? And so I went back to the Plaza Inn. And what that one with the eagle that's in my book that says, Walt, mm-hmm. the real cafe is not the Pavoni. That's uh, the wrong. It's, and it's gotten past a lot of people, you know, that didn't notice that. Tanya pointed it out to me. So if you go to the Plaza Inn, if you have the book, you can see the brass coffee maker with the eagle on top that she created for then the very elegant Plaza Inn. But the Pavoni that says Pavoni on it is is there, as you said, and I need to replace that with a better photograph. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, that got past me as well. <laughs> it's got past me and eat like wolves. So, but, you know, isn't that the fun of all, first of all, history, you know, as my friend Ed Ovalli in the Walt Disney Archives, whose primary area of research is Walt, um, I believe his signature said biographers always get it wrong, you know, and, you know, you're always learning something, his, you know, books are never finished, they just go to print. So yeah, that got past me and eat like Walt, it got past me in Walt's Disneyland, a walk in the park with Walt Disney, but now I know and I will correct it and your listeners are the very first people to know what I learned. Oh, great. Well, Thank you so much for sharing that story. And yeah, and and folks definitely go to um, Cafe Orleans to take a look at that because Walt actually purchased that for the park. He purchased it for the park, absolutely. And you know, and when you go to the Plaza Inn, where it was when I was just there a few weekends ago, um, if you go to the left side, right near the soda fountain on the left side of the Plaza Inn, is the one that is in the photograph. I took Tanya to see that, and she confirmed that was it. So pretty cool. Great. Okay. Thank you. So now let's look at the realm most closely associated with Walt. And Craig already brought it up, and that's Fantasyland, because this is where all of Walt's characters came to life or come to life. Um, where, I like where do you? Thank you. Pardon me. 
I really appreciate you're using the present tense on that. Yes. Um, where do you go, Marcy, to really connect with Walt in Fantasyland? Hmm. Well, I did say, you know, how much I'm a huge fan of Peter Pan. I will ride the carousel every time. Um, mm-hmm. I'll spend time I'm there, whether I'm with kids or not. <laughs> I, you I know, know. I'm Mr. Toad, I, I just, yeah, all of the attractions. Um, not that they had to open at 55, but the wall had something to do with them. Storybook, Alice, just love, love, love Alice so much. Storybook, I found out something also interesting since this book went to print, and it's only started recently, is that now they have a guest book, and the first guest or party that arrives at Storybook gets to sign this guest book. Really? And- Hmm. And so, you know, for me, Craig was alluding to it earlier, like with rope drop, where do you go? I would say now for me, next time um, at Disneyland, I'm going to try to be the storybook <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, pass by my usual standbys. So that's another fun fact. I did confirm that with a couple of cast members. And so pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I remember when I was really young, Carefree Corner on Main Street, you would go there and they had guest books. Right. And you could you could sign them, and you could even look back and see if any of your friends um, friends that you knew had visited Disneyland. I forgot. I mean, I know that, but I hadn't put those two together. That's really true. And and the other thing about Storybook, of course, is how much Walt loved miniatures, and so I feel mm-hmm. especially connected to Walt looking at those miniatures. Yeah. yeah, I remember when I was reading about Harriet Burns because we had her daughter on the show, and. There was such a funny story where, because Walt, yeah, you're right, he loved miniatures. He was always checking in at the model shop when they were building the original houses for there. And Harriet Burns was working on the stained glass window for the um, church in the, I think it's the Alice in Wonderland section. And, well, she had laid out all the glass on the table and had it there, but had not used the lead yet in order to start putting in the glass and Walt comes in and lifts it up because he wanted to look at it through the light and sort of um, ruined everything that Harriet had put together. And he was very apologetic and all that. And so I guess she started a code started where um, they would, a warning would get sent to the model shop and it was um, yellow shoes coming and that referred to um, Walt. Well, so the first, yeah, the first they time. Know, first, go ahead. Well, no, so that they would know that they didn't want him to touch something, they would secure it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I love that story. And, you know, and, and also Harriet saying, you know, essentially, he just loved playing with the stuff so much, you just couldn't get mad at him type thing. He just mm-hmm. loved it. You know, and that is a distinction in both with Eat Like Walt and Walt's Disneyland that I really do like to. To, to make is that everybody knew Walt, no exceptions, only first person accounts, right? So that I think that's how we keep the integrity of the history. The yellow shoes is interesting. I read in something in the archives where Harriet was commenting on these yellow shoes that Walt had, these yellow, not like Mickey Mouse, but like the beautiful, because he dressed beautifully, um, kind of mustard yellow shoes. And I've heard that whole story. I have not ever asked the Walt Disney archives to um, corroborate it yet, but I've mm-hmm. read, heard the same. Yeah. Yeah. So now we come to the most challenging realm from the very beginning of Disneyland until today, and that's Tomorrowland. And Walt was a visionary. And so it's so sad that they, they always had a hard time sort of 
putting their heads around Tomorrowland. Uh, what was Walt's original hope for this land? Nothing is coming to mind where I have a direct quote uh, that I can say, you know, words, but I think you said it. He was a visionary. He was an innovator. He was always looking forward. He was excited about the future. And so that's, you know, what was going to be represented. But as you know, when Disneyland opened, there was no time, right? So there mm-hmm. was, you know, a 20,000 leagues of the sea sets. It took place in the 1800s and art and those tables everywhere. Um, but I would say you you said it. It was like the hope for the future and what the future is going to represent. Obviously, you know, when we learned about more about Epcot and his community of tomorrow, that was also something that he was so fascinated with. I The thing that I would like to add about Walt, because I can't directly answer your question, and I'm sorry that it's nothing's coming to mind to give a specific, specific example, what he had intended answer. But what I learned from Disney legend um, Floyd Norman that I think is really spot on when it comes to Walt. Um, at the time, you know, John Laster's an incredible filmmaker and always was compared to Walt, you know, being the same level, you know, a filmmaker like Walt Disney or Walt Disney's um, uh, heir apparent or, you know, the, the reincarnation of Walt when it came to movies. And Floyd and I were talking one day at Walt's barn in LA where Floyd does go a lot. And he said, I don't think it's John Laster. And he said, I think it's Steve Jobs. Because Walt was such an innovator, and you look what he came up with that no one thought of before, like Disneyland, like you know the iPhone for Steve Jobs. He always said that the, those two were the most um, comparable um, in terms of what they brought to the world. So I'm just going to share that because that does reflect back to Tomorrowland. I mm-hmm. think Tomorrowland. What was you know? It's it's that's another topic of discussion. And I, <laughs> one thing I will say that would make me very happy would be for Mary Blair's murals to be there. Yes. They're safe. They're behind the facades at Buzz Lightyear and Star Tours. And Marty Square has confirmed they are indeed safe. But wouldn't it just be wonderful to see that again? And maybe that would, ah, I'd love it. That doesn't help the tomorrow part. And I'm sorry, that's not a very good comment. But No. <laughs> I mean, I knew he hoped that part, part of the plan was that it would be a, sort of to show new technologies that would bring about a better world. And I think when, when Tomorrowland opened in 67, it did reflect that with all the transportation and the, the mighty microscope, you know, and, and, you know, Carousel of Progress being brought in and all that. So I think, I don't know, for me, that was the best of all the Tomorrowlands was that version of it. Now, when I, we, when I went to Disneyland Paris and I, I, had a tour, you know, a group of us had a tour with a Disney Imagineer there. He claimed that the, um, there, there's a, I don't know if it's the Pinocchio Village House or whatever. It's a, it's a eatery there and there's crushed, um, mosaic, mosaics in the, um, in, in the walkways and the walls. And they claimed that was the Mary Blair murals. And I was horrified i thought i'm not even walking in here and then later on i was told that actually it's it's parts of the murals because when they covered them some of the tiles were damaged and so they sent those over to disneyland paris for use but that most of the um yeah most of the mosaics are intact 
Yeah, I did not know that about Disneyland Paris. Wow, that would I'd be with you. I might probably, probably start crying when he said that. Yeah, I was I I was appalled. <laughs> but, but in fact, they were repurposed for a great thing like bringing uh, part of Walt and his people and his legacy to Disneyland Paris. I love that. Yeah, and I thought, you know, okay, these are damaged tiles anyway that they were going to have to remove. Then, okay, at least they used them for something else. Right. Correct, I agree. And the same thing that Eddie Sato, you know, bringing Walt's Disneyland restaurant, Walt's restaurant to Disneyland Paris, which is reopening on April 12th. You know, I just love that that is there for Walt. And it's very, even maybe the food isn't entirely what Walt would eat, but the mm-hmm. restaurant itself is definitely a mini museum of Walt's. Yeah. Do you know, is it opening to guests? Because there was a rumor it was going to be converted to a Club 33 type of Restaurant. I believe I read on official, this is where you have to be careful, but I believe I read on official Disney parks that it's opening on April 12th, which is the 30th anniversary of Disneyland Paris. So I'm pretty sure it is reopening and that they have announced new menu. Oh, good. Okay. Because we got to eat there, but they had already closed it, but they reopened it for us. Oh, wow. Uh, we were part of an Adventures by Disney group that the Diz had arranged so they opened it for us and and it was wonderful and i have so many photos of it because there's so many historic photos in there and and things so i took a lot of pictures good for you (laughs) so now of course a visit to disneyland wouldn't be complete without a grand circle tour on one of walt's beloved trains And, and you'd mentioned that earlier so is this something you do at the beginning of your day like when you enter the park or do you do it? When, when do you usually ride the train? I consider myself the reader as much as the writer. And I write a lot at Disneyland uh, up until I live in Northern California and I would go down there. I just, for all those reasons we talked about to be with the magic, to be with connect with Walt, to be with other people um, that care as much about Disneyland as me. And I used to say that one of my offices was the train. And I would sometimes ride that 10, 12, 15 times in a row. And I would always close my laptop in the diorama. And to answer your question, I would write it when I had to, when it was, I would write it when it was time to write. So that would depend on the day, you know, the time of the day. Um, didn't necessarily have to be what I call my opener, which was always Pirates of the Caribbean. Or my closer, which is usually Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, it would be whenever it is convenient. Um, but I love it. And I could, I just feel like also it gives, you know, it might even be my favorite attraction. Okay, what's your favorite? I'm going to ask you and Craig, because I'm going to call it out as the train is my favorite attraction, Walt's train, because it's Walt's, because you can see all of Disneyland, um, because it meant so much to him, because of the World's Fair and the diorama, because it gave the preview of the park of, oh, I want to go there, which is what Walt intended, because you get to people watch, because it's happy. I love the sound of steam. Um, I love it when they uh, all that stuff. And I definitely will wait on the train for the holiday cars. I'm not a fan of the excursion cars straight on. Um, I definitely will wait for the holiday cars. I, I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, what are your guys' favorite attractions? Oh, you know, mine, I... It changes sometimes, but I would say more consistently, it's probably Pirates of the Caribbean, because I think that is just the pinnacle of storytelling. The And it was, you know, of course, it was one of the, it was the last attraction Walt was directly involved with. And just 
it's so magnificent with all the audio animatronics and the story. And then the one you told about Walt designing the two drops. I, I just think it's such a grand experience. And they just, you know, they just don't make them like that anymore. So I think the Disneyland version of Pirates of the Caribbean for me. Yeah, that's my favorite attraction. Yeah, that's uh, if we're talking about ones directly that Walt touched in Disneyland. I it's a toss up for me between Pirates of the Caribbean and Jungle Cruise. It honestly just depends on uh, what what day of the week it is for me. But <laughs> my overall favorite attraction at Disneyland is and will probably always be Indiana Jones Adventure, just because I mean it's Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a great choice. Yeah, I don't think it has to be necessarily be a Walt. I mean, I I love that attraction too, and especially you know in those times when you could uh, waited forever and then it broke down right before you. <laughs> and they'll say, "Do you want to wait or do you want to leave the building?" Ah, oh, you know, it's like that's uh, happened a few times. Terrific. Yeah, and I think that Tony Baxter said, and I'm not. I please don't hold me to this, but. That, you know, it was particularly difficult because it has to reset every seven seconds with the ball coming down, you know, like the challenges, the technological challenges of that, right? And the storytelling and the immersiveness uh, is just spectacular. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, too. Yeah. I have a funny train story, though. I was I was walking around Disneyland with a friend of mine who's a Imagineer, and we rode in the um, the coal car. I forget what they call that. Tender. On the tr- tender, thank you, on the train. And we were going around and they had to do their water stop to refill and all that. And one of the engineers, young fellow, stayed in the train and we got the chatting. And I and I asked him, So how did you you know, how did you get involved with the trains? What what was your interest in? He says, Well, my grandfather, uh you say my family really goes way back with trains. My grandfather had a train in his backyard, and I said, Are you related to Ward Kimball? <laughs> And he said he was my grandfather. And I thought, wow. (laughs) That was amazing. I love that, you know, that was Ward's uh, quote that is in the Grand Circle Tour about when, well, the first time that Walt had ever, you know, run a locomotive. And I remember I read that like five times and I would cry. Um, But Ward says to Walt, so you want to you want to run it up front? And Walt says, no, 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 no. Ford says, go ahead. All you have to do is push the Johnson bar forward and open the throttle and it'll start off. And so he did. And I watched him. His eyes were dropping out of his sockets and he had his mouth wide open. He was running a locomotive for the first time. Ah, I love that quote from Ward. Yes, yeah, I can just see that, you know, I can feel like I can just see the emotion and the excitement and the giddy that's just just coming out of him, you know, the excitement. Because even though with his Uncle Mike and Marceline that he got a ride, who's an engineer, that he got a ride in the cab, you know, that's not the same thing as driving it. No, no, not at all. Now, oh, and one of the pages I found most amusing in your book was the list of reasons from experts as to why Walt's ideas for Disneyland wouldn't work. And it's funny because many of these turned out to be the reasons why Disneyland is a success. (laughs) Yeah, very completely. (laughs) Well, that was a, a study that Buzz Price, who did many things, among, including finding the locations for Walt Disney World and Disneyland, went to leading amusement park operators and gave a presentation about Disneyland, apparently with some cigars and plenty of alcohol, and gave them a pitch and asked them for their responses. 
I love that so much. And writing a book like this is a bit like Tetris because sometimes I have something, I don't know where it's going to go in the book, or it could even be something uh, that Walt touched at Disneyland, but if I don't have a story, I'm not going to put it in, or I do have a story, I don't know where it goes. And that applies to these amusement park operators' responses about Disneyland. The very end of the book is about um, when Walt dies and passes away. And I knew that I was crying when I was reading some of these accounts of the his, you know, what was happening at Disneyland that day. And so I thought, I want to leave readers something to laugh at and to look back and say, you know what? He was right. And Disneyland is still exactly as he had planned it all those years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's why I put them in there. Yeah, the, the idea about uh, uh, custom attractions will never work. <laughs> yeah. As I said earlier, don't waste the money on landscaping. Nobody cares, you know, essentially. <laughs> oh, yeah. The single entrance, you know, all kinds of things. Economic suicide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, Craig and I often get questions from listeners who are planning a visit to the Disneyland Resort for the first time. And they ask us, and a lot of times because they're they're used to Walt Disney World. So they want to, they ask us what experiences should they not miss? What places should they eat at? So I'd like to get your advice for these listeners. So what are your recommendations for attractions and maybe entertainment that are not to be missed for first time visitors to Disneyland? Well, you know, it's going to be a very Walt-specific tour if you're asking me. So Mm -hmm. thank you. So definitely I would say great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And if you can time that to be close by at about 4, it's usually 4.30, check the guide for the flag retreat. That is something that Walt himself instituted on opening day. And I consider it an e-ticket attraction that many people are missing. It's very emotional, very important, very, very Walt. And it is incredibly important um to attend that so that's at the end of the day um but go to mr lincoln for sure great moments with mr lincoln yeah look up at walt's apartment <laughs> i'm gonna go i'm gonna go really fast let's see going left and uh, attend um walt Disney's enchanted tiki room and please always refer to it at least the first time of the day as walt Disney's enchanted tiki room because it's the only attraction at disneyland with walt's name on it also, he owned it and he sold it back to Disneyland on the day that it opened. And it was also his first audio animatronic attraction, so not to be missed. The Jungle Cruise, as Craig mentioned, very important to Walt. Um, moving down. Oh, and then when you're in Adventureland, go to Bengal Barbecue. I think that's some of the best food. And yes. Fast food to get a skewer or a vegetarian skewer. Uh, make your way to Pirates of the Caribbean when it reopens. In New Orleans, oh, in New Orleans Square, obviously going to ride uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and as Michael pointed out, go to the um, uh, the Creole Cafe. I keep calling it the Creole Cafe, Cafe Orleans, to see the Pavoni machine that Walt personally um, built. Then, when you're in Frontierland and you now New Orleans Square, notice the uh, behind the train tracks. That's the original Frontierland station. Said a lot, but. If your listeners, I'm sure, know because they're listening to Connecting with Walt, but the Morse code is Walt's speech for opening day. When you go to the Haunted Mansion, Walt did have something to do with the Walt Dis- with the Haunted Mansion. He was talking about it way back in the 50s. Uh, definitely ride the Haunted Mansion. And then, let's see. Oh, uh, I do love um, Across the Way. Uh, they, they've changed the name of it, but where the Joe Fowler's dock is, um, mm-hmm. I the lobster rolls there are really quite tasty. Yes, okay. they are. I always get one when I'm there. And if you're looking for a sit down, I highly recommend that you go to Hungry Bear because if you, when you go to Hungry Bar, if you get a table on the upstairs in the very back, 
you have one of the best Walt Disney views at Disneyland. You have his Rivers of America, Tom Sawyer Island, Mark Twain Riverboat, and the sailing ship Columbia, all in one view. It's impossible not to take that in and be staggered by the entire experience. Then um, let's see, when we're back towards Fantas- oh, Frontierland, uh-huh, well, oh boy, uh, for sure, Mark Twain Riverboat, another one of Walt's favorites, also paid for it with his own money. The Golden Horseshoe, see the show, have a root beer float, have a treat. If you want, look at the stage, lower right was Walt's box. Um, hint, it has a power outage, a power there, so you can recharge your devices while you watch the show. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also, he just absolutely loved it. Even though Walt usually did not eat in his box, he would be seen, as I've been told, on the ground, on the floor with the rest of his guests. And then when you go to the shop in Frontierland, um, the Frontierland shop that is across from Rancho Zocalo and the shooting gallery, there is the Orchestrion, which is a 25-cent machine that plays instruments that Walt personally bought. And I, that is, to me, a super-duper thing. So bring quarters, even though we pay for everything with cards in our app now. Then in Fantasyland, I think we covered Fantasyland, all of Walt's attractions, um, if you could make do them all. Then go to, oh gosh, It's a Small World, Can't Be Missed, obviously another Walt's oh, yes. We have to, I mean, that would be the coolest thing is if we could reopen the other things so that we could bring back Carousel of Progress and have all of the World's Fair attractions at Disneyland. How cool would that be? Um, After It's a Small World, there is also, if you brought your lunch or you get it from somewhere else, there is that little island that juts out as you're facing It's a Small World to the right that's easy to walk by. It's covered and it has tables and chairs. It's another beautiful place to have lunch or dinner. It's monorail is right above you and you can see the beginning or the end of the parade from those gates next to it's a small world depending on if it's um, Mm -hmm. starting or ending there in tomorrowland i would say be sure and look at the tree another tree story that is next to the utopia and close to what was carousel of progress that was planted by rolly crump and jack evans wally uh, rolly told me the story of Jack saying to Walt when the Tomorrowland remodel was being planned, I found this great tree and it's just perfect for Tomorrowland and it's a multi-trunk reclinata. And Walt said, yeah, 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 one day we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then he died. And most people didn't know that Walt was going to die. And so as a tribute to him, Jack went and bought that tree. I think it was $4,000 in 1967, a staggering price. Brought it down himself, met Rolly at three o'clock in the morning and planted it in Walt's honor. And that tree is still there, the reclinata tree. So see the Reclinata tree, um, look above uh, uh, Buzz Lightyear and Star Tours and know that Mary Blair's murals are back there. <laughs> yes, I always do. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then go to the partner statue, pay your respects, of course. And then down, now we're down on Main, back on Main Street again and the Plaza Pavilion can never say what was Walt's favorite among Walt's favorite. Uh, he complete, was very involved with the redesign in 1965. And there's two windows to look for that are very Walt-centric. On facing the, um, the plaza and on the right side across from the first aid uh, and the baby center, there are in the very back are these old triptych style windows. If you look in, that was what we can't really, but that, those windows are original and that was Walt's first hideout. Um, I found a memo in 1954 when Disneyland was being planned. The hideout stays. Walt wanted a private room, and he was not going to let any budgets cut it. So that was where the original hideout 
or then called the Disney room was. I have a picture of it in Walt's Disneyland. It was a big room. You could really entertain. But when the Plaza Inn was being remodeled, um, they had to give up that room for a new kitchen. So Walt's hideout moved to the other side of the Plaza Inn. And if you go all the way to the Tomorrowland restrooms, you will see a door on the back of the porch with a multicolored pane window. And that was Walt's hideout number two. So there's a lot of Walt at the Plaza Inn. And I, if you ask for Steve Bockenberg, who's been there now 42 years, yes. I am the ambassador. He can point to where Walt's table was and ask for Walt's table and have lunch at Walt's table. So, or dinner or breakfast, a character breakfast um, at the Plaza Inn. So that would be my super duper fast must do. Um, and yeah, the Plaza Inn, I think the chicken is incredible, the fried chicken, but also the Cobb salad's really tasty. That's going to be your higher end pricier experience uh, with Bengal barbecue being at the, the lower end. Okay, great. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, you know, what where do you recommend people eat to connect with Waltz? So I think those are places. And Craig would recommend a corn dog at the Red Wagon. <laughs> yeah, well, the Red Wagon, of course, the first blessing was, you know, Swift's Red Wagon, and that's an homage to the icon of Swift. But also, I think they're the best corn dogs at Disneyland because all they make there is corn dogs. At the um, over there in Frontierland, they are making, and that oil is share, stage door is being shared with French fries and mozzarella sticks and fish sticks and everything else. So the finer corn dog for sure at Disneyland is the little red wagon and now they have it on mobile ordering so that is pretty darn cool yes yes absolutely before we go a um, couple of other things we were talking before the show I am really excited about your next book and you said we can talk about it that is that 100 best Disney adventures of all times what can you tell us about the book well, thank you for bringing it up. It comes out October 4th. Um, so National Geographic, a lot of people don't realize that National Geographic is now in the Disney family. And after I had finished last July of 2021, and I had finished Walt's Disneyland, A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney, that's three years of research and writing. It's the same amount of words as Eat Like Walt. Uh, but I purposely, I do want to say this, I wanted it to be a souvenir guide. And so I also wanted it to be affordable and portable. And that is why it is a soft cover. Um, hopefully readers, if they can't get to Disneyland, can, you know, read it. We talked about and get all the feels. If they do, when they come to Disneyland, take it with them and really be able to connect with Walt by reading it and finding the sites. Um, so uh, when those, and then the Walt Disney World 50th book. So I was exhausted, but my editor said, you know, do you want to throw your hat in the ring for a National Geographic book, The 100 Best Disney Adventures? Honestly, guys, at first I said no. I mean, my reaction was, I'm so tired, I can't do it, you know. Uh, but then, of course, I came around that I would be silly not to throw my hat in the ring and fade out, fade in. They offered it to me. So it was the thing about it was it was extremely fast track. This is July of last year. And the book is, well, it comes out to everybody on October 4th. It is debuting at Expo in September. So I only had eight months to write a massive book. Um, wow. I worked so, but, you know, I just said, Take the cookies when they're passed, which is an expression that a surrogate grandfather told me, a depression era saying, you know, you never know when you're going to get cookies again. And we started. They had they had already begun vetting all like the principles across the company. You know, what do you think the 100 best things are? And we started with that list. But a lot of it, honestly, is mine uh, being a Disney geek and wanting to put in things that are free. Uh, wanting to put in things. So they're not all these big grand adventures, you know, and there are things like 
food is obviously included and trips and adventure by Disney and things you can do in the park. So I'm really pleased. It's a really beautiful book and partnering with National Geographic has been amazing. And I believe, um, you know, this is one of the very first partnerships with them. So it's going to be exciting to debut at Expo. And there'll be two versions. There's the $50 version, they're both hardcover. Um, and then there'll be a $100 deluxe version I wish I could tell you the special things that are in there, but I consider them really special and those will be announced at some point in the future, but I just can't share it now, but it'll be worth on. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Oh, intriguing, intriguing. I'm I'm looking forward to it, but until then, I mean, I definitely, I'm going to get that book and I think probably read it and update my bucket list. I hope so. I mean, a lot of people are going to know there's just something for everybody in there. It's an impossible task if it's 100. And this is going to be my last thing because we're running over. The one thing I'm really proud of and I thank National Geographic for, I said, I want to include things that aren't in the, you know, the Disney empire, like actually the Disney company. And they said, like, what? And I said, I want to have, it's 100 Best Disney Adventures. I want to have Adventure with Walt. So in every chapter, there's five chapters. There are two Adventure with Walt entries. Everything from Walt's Barnes, the Hometown Museum, to Walt Disney Family Museum that Michael and I have been together in the Presidio in San Francisco, to mm-hmm. Robert's Garage, to the, where you can find, you know, the old Hyperion at Gilson's. I mean, all these different ways to connect with Walt. Uh, and I think that, you know, in Chicago Birthplace, it's so important because we are celebrating the purpose of this book is to celebrate, be part of the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company in 2023. That is what this is targeted for. And how could we not do that without celebrating with Walt and connecting with Walt? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. And I love that you have things that are free that just everybody can do yes. as well as well as things that, you know, you save up, save up your money to do as well. I'm really looking forward to that book. In the meantime, how can our listeners get their own copy of Walt's Disneyland, A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney? Because we touched on very little of what's in this book. I have read it twice, and I thought I knew everything about Disneyland, but there were stories in here I had never read before. And or what's also nice is, is that you've put together stories where they're scattered in all kinds of different places, different kinds of reference books and biographies and all that. And you have them in one nice little compact book that I can refer back to. So how can our listeners get a copy of this book? Well, thank you for all your support, Michael and Craig. I really appreciate it. There's a lot of ways. Uh, You can get it um, at Shop Disney. You can get it on Amazon where they're usually running some crazy good specials. Um, Also, it's at Target walmart the big booksellers and it will be it's been at disneyland it went into reprint only a few weeks after it came out which is a wonderful wonderful thing but right now it's sold out in the parks but do look for it at disneyland beginning in mid to late may okay terrific and marcy do you have a website where listeners can learn more about your books and projects i do it's a mouthful it's my name marcy character smothers.com so any kind of Marcy with a Y, smothers.com. And I do post a lot of, you know, reviews or I'll post this podcast there and information I'll be posting about Nat Geo very, very shortly. Great. Well, thank you so much.
for coming to coming on to connecting us Walt to talk about Walt Disney, Disneyland and your new book, Walt Disneyland, Walt's Disneyland, a, a walk in the park with Walt Disney. I am looking forward to having you back to talk about the 100 best Disney adventures of all time. If you'll come back for that and maybe sometime talk about how we can connect with Walt at Walt Disney World. I know our I, listeners would love <laughs> to hear about that. I would love to do that. I'm going to be at Walt Disney World Retro on April 24th in Orlando with some stellar lineup of Disney legends. It's crazy how cool this day is going to be. Um, and I'm going to be doing some more research and I'd love to. It's small things, but I consider them significant things. And I'm always on the lookout for them. So Great. Well, thank you so much, Marcia. I look forward to um, the next time we meet and the next time we talk. Thank you both very much and have a wonderful, wonderful week. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you at Disneyland in person soon. Oh, that was so much fun talking to Marcy about Disneyland. I, She's just so enthusiastic and so passionate and so sweet and everything. It's, I don't know, I love talking to her about oh, yeah. anything Disney. Yeah, so, I, I'm just happy she has so much coming in the pipeline that we know it's not going to be so long until the the next time we get to talk to her because it's it's been years since Eat Like Walt came out and uh, the the fun thing about that one is when we did that interview way back when I was actually in California uh, we were we were out there doing a trip. Uh, mm-hmm. for for the Diz and I remember everyone else was all running around the parks and I had to run back to the hotel room to record that podcast but then it it energized me to get back you know into Disneyland again and uh it's it just she is she's wonderful to listen to yeah I can't tell you how many times I pull out that book to do recipes like I had a hankering for um chili when it was we were having a cold snap and I pulled the recipe out of there. There's so many good recipes in there that I pull. And then, then my problem though is I start making my grocery list and then I start reading the book <laughs> <laughs> because it's not just a recipe book. It's a history book. And yep. so it's great. And I, I'm, I've been going through and reading, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, oh, what was it? The, the one on Walt, the Walt Disney World. You know, book that she um, came out with, and um, yeah, delicious Disney, Walt Disney yes. World, and yeah. there's some really exotic recipes in there. But there's some fun ones in there. I haven't tried any yet because I get caught up reading the book. Yeah, <laughs> is my problem. <laughs> so, but I, there's a couple that have caught my eye yeah. in there in that delicious Disney book that I thought, oh, I'm going to try these. So, um, so I'm looking hey, forward to that. It's a good problem to have. It is. It is. We're very fortunate to have them. But with that, with the um, 100 uh, best Disney adventures of all time, I just thought, I think I talked to her about it off air, is that I, I would love for her to be like the, the Samantha Brown of Disney, and they turn that into a series for Disney+. Plus. I mean, wouldn't that be great? And she hosted it. Oh, yeah, that would be so and great. That would be a terrific series. We were always complaining about... Oh, lack of new content on Disney Plus. That would be a great one. Mm-hmm, for Disney. Mm-hmm. So maybe somebody there is listening to us, and they'll they'll reach out to Marcy and say, "Hey, we have this great idea." Only hope. <laughs> yeah. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. 
Okay, Greg, I think it's my turn now this week. You are correct, yes. Gosh, I'm starting to get the hang of this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you know, I had to go with the theme of what we were talking about today, because I knew Marcy was joining us. So I chose April 2nd, 1954. And this is when the plans for both Disneyland the Park and Disneyland the Television Show were announced when both the boards of ABC and the Walt Disney Company approved the ownership and financing. So Walt states on this day that the television series will begin in October 1954 and that the park will open in July 1955. And the television show will be patterned after the different lands of his new California theme park. So Disney and ABC signed the agreement regarding the building of, and it said in the agreement, Disneylandia, which was, you know, and we've talked about this before, when Walt had an idea of doing miniatures traveling like on railway cars and all that, it was going to be called Disneylandia. So he that name was in the contract. And ABC advances Disney um, $500,000 in cash and guarantees all the bank loans. And in exchange for this, ABC received 35% ownership of Disneylandia, 100% of all the profits from the park's food concessions for 10 years, and an eight-year commitment from the Walt Disney Studio to use its library of films to be aired as one-hour television programs. So ABC is financing Disneyland, but this is a good deal for ABC television too yeah. who was the who was the third out of the big three networks at the time so and then as we talked about in a previous show there was uh, there was an escape clause in here where walt could um, buy them out early and he did because he wanted control of everything and then that's when abc got mad and they um that's when they wrangled over all the Disneyland television shows, you know, and the Disney television shows like Zorro, Mickey Mouse Club, and all that. And that's when Walt just pulled the plug on all of them, and 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 he moved over to another network. So, um, so anyway, so this is it, April second, nineteen fifty four. Every the world hears about Disneyland. Yeah, that's a. Uh that is a, a very good one. Um, mine is obviously I've got to go with something goofy that can never live up to your very important ones. So, well, is it about hockey? <laughs> uh, it is not about hockey this time okay. around. So we're getting we're getting too much into spring. So you know, it, until we get to some like Stanley Cup playoff action in a, another couple weeks from now, it's it's going to be quiet. But uh, I. I am so happy to talk about this one just briefly. I, I believe we've touched on it before, but um, it, it, mine comes technically a day slash a day before, two days before yours. Um, on March 31st of 2019, uh, it was the final day for a very special attraction at Walt Disney Studios Park. Uh, as part of Disneyland Paris and officially closed no more guests going on it on April 1st 2019 which was not an April Fool's joke obviously but that attraction of course was the Armageddon special effects attraction that uh, is without a doubt one of the 
worst Disney attractions that I've ever had the pleasure to see. Experience. It was gone. It was gone by the time I went there because we went in October. Yep, so. and you literally missed nothing with it. <laughs> I I feel so bad saying it. I I. You know, when I went to Paris, of course, it was that Disney invited me out to cover the Fan Days event that they did mm-hmm. uh, back in 2018. And so, I, I it was a whirlwind trip that, if I remember correctly, I think we did episodes on the show we did. surrounding it. We yeah. did. It was inter- it sounded fantastic. Yeah. And, the the and, event. It was. And uh, so, like, what how that all happened was I basically, you know, I spent like anyone traveling i spent a ton of time flying over to paris i got in like i got in later than everyone else uh most people got in like first thing in the morning after like flying a red eye over and they had a full day at at the theme parks and i didn't i didn't get in until um it was like right at dinner time so by the time dinner was over i just went to bed and then the next day I was exploring Disneyland Paris because, you know, it's my first time there. That's the park that I want to focus on. And then at night I was like solely in inside uh, the Walt Disney Studios Park because that's where the Fan Days adventure was. Uh, the Fan Day Fan Days <laughs> event was, excuse me for bumbling over my words here. I'm trying to like not talk too long about this but get it all out so when i was in that park for fan days it was all running around seeing characters seeing all the special stuff the special shows they only had for that event so i couldn't take advantage of like anything else but like made mental plans so then the next day my final day i started the morning out in uh disneyland park and then went over and knocked everything out in uh in california or walt disney studios jeez louise now i'm just calling it california adventure (laughs) um i I knocked everything out in the walt disney studios park and like the best part of that is i believe if i remember correctly the armageddon attraction was the last one that i did before i walked back over to disneyland uh disneyland park at disneyland paris and so like this was my final, final attraction I did in that park. And I don't know when I'm ever going back, but that was like the last thing with me. And it just, it, everything was so bad. It was watching pre-shows that were just so cheesy um, and just bad dubbing. And then essentially you just walk into a round room for the main show. And of course, a meteors crashing into it. And there was just a lot of fire and loud noises. And it was like, kind of like take the same idea of catastrophe Canyon, but enclose it in a tiny, tiny round room. And there you have it. And I, I'm so happy that I had the chance to do it because I love the movie Armageddon. It has been like one of my guilty pleasures since the first time I ever watched it back in theaters when it came out. Um, and it's definitely, it is, uh, when it was removed, that was the, the end of an era for, for Disney parks and, uh, of course, you know, it is, it's making the way for Avengers Campus out there, which is getting closer and closer to opening. But yeah, it will, it will always have a special place in my heart. Oh, it sounds better than their backlot tour. 
<laughs> and I went on. The You Told Me was wonderful. I <laughs> thought their Backlot tour was magnificent compared to, uh, <laughs> compared to Armageddon. I, I oh, really see, enjoyed I their Backlot tour. I did not have that basis of comparison, so maybe that's why. Anyway, <laughs> well, I'm sorry I missed it. I'm sure it lives on in videos. I'll have to look it up. This week, uh, it was announced DizCon. The details were announced. Of course, last year it was the Diz family reunion, and we reported on that on the show. This year, it's DizCon. It's taking place September 30th to October 1st at Disney's Coronado Springs. And of course, and there's an after hours party at Epcot on October 1st, which is the 40th anniversary. And it, uh, all of this, like last year, is to benefit the absolutely wonderful Give Kids the World. And, um, so it's going, it's going to be like, uh, you know, like last year, where there's going to be panels and vendors, and um, and in the after hours, I know, well, of course, at Epcot, you'll be able to go on Ratatouille, and I'm sure there's going to be other things going on there. It won't just be the France Pavilion; it's open. I think they're opening up the areas uh, of the of England and also United Kingdom and also of um, Morocco. Yes, over there that's too. What I understand as well, yeah. Yeah, so it's the funny thing is, is that when Carol went, had to go to a convention at, um, at the Coronado Springs Resort at that same exact time 20 years ago, and it was our son's 18th birthday. And so we pulled him out of school. Uh, he was a senior in high school and we thought, okay, because I was going to go with Carol. Our daughter was already gone and in college. And so we thought, okay, we'll pull him out because it's his 18th birthday and we'll celebrate it at Disneyland or at, at Walt Disney World. And so on the 20th anniversary, we went and, and, um, he got his birthday button and, um, we went there for the 20th anniversary of Epcot. So I thought, oh, it's sort of cool. 20 years later, it's DizCon. So, um, so Craig, is, is there any, any um, details about it that you want to share about DizCon? I know that it's, they're being revealed as time goes on because there's still a lot being planned. Uh, yeah, I I don't even have all of the details of it. Um, I I know I I know a couple things that haven't been announced yet that oh. I think are very exciting. Uh, as as long as they they come to to pass, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, panels that are announced so far include a panel with um, a panel with Aladdin uh, about about the Disney animated movie, uh, mm-hmm. not. The, not the remake. Will Smith isn't showing up, so don't yeah. don't get your hopes up for that. Yeah, it's the thirtieth anniversary <laughs> yeah, reunion. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, Pat Sajak scheduled to come back, and Tony Baxter for people who missed them the last time around for Dis Family Reunion, which were two of the, the biggest highlights for a lot of people that I talked to about it. Thought that both of both uh, the panel events, seeing them was was definitely a big part of it. And uh, new faces, um, I I didn't even realize that uh, you 
you and I were talking about it before the show. I didn't realize that uh, Disney artist Shag was uh, yeah was scheduled to be on, and he's not just a Disney artist. He just happens to do a lot of Disney artwork, but um, he he does I he does a lot of tiki mugs for tiki bars all over the country, and a lot of mid-century modern uh, artwork and designs. And his art is very expensive. Um, but I, I have a lot of it in like postcard form because that's basically all I can afford. Um, but it's, that, that's a cool, a cool get to because I love hearing about, about art and the artistic process considering I'm not very talented in, uh, in a lot of, uh, art besides if we want to consider my video work that I do, if we want to consider that art, I'll, I'll, gladly take it but i don't paint i don't draw i don't i don't do any of that so i love hearing about other people who are actually talented at it but uh it's i i can't wait to see what all is announced that i don't even know about but yeah I know they're, they're probably be there. An, another new face is imagineer um brian collins i had to look him up some of the things that he did is he i know he was a show writer in imagineering and he worked on a lot of the original disney mgm studio attractions as a show writer and that like the backlot tour and the great movie ride amongst others so that should be interesting he should have some good stories about the development of that that um studio there that theme park know that so there's going to be a lot more information oh yeehaw bob is going to be there also so you know that'll be fun because um i would look forward to that i've never seen him in person so i've only i watch him online on um sundays usually i'm working on the show at 3 p.m he um pacific time he always does a show on online so I, i like to watch that so um Anyway, so I'm sure Craig will have a uh, a link in our show notes to the information. And, of course, you can contact Dreams Unlimited Travel if you want to get a room, Coronado Springs or one of the other resorts, if you're going to attend DizCon. And and um, anyway, so that would be um, – so so looking forward to that event. should be a lot of fun. So. Well, Craig, we, we last week we talked about um, Turning Red. I watched another film on Disney Plus because I'm trying to watch films that have been nominated for, you know, for the Academy Awards. Not that I watched the Academy Awards. That was Carol's thing. But um, I watch, I love musicals. So I watched West Side Story and I went into it thinking, you know, the original was such a classic. Why did they need to remake it? And then I'd heard some of it was in Spanish and they didn't have the subtitles and I, because the supremacy of English. And I thought, well, that's very precious. But the problem is, you know, if it goes to another country, they're going to have subtitles. So anyway, so I was a little worried I wouldn't, I'd miss stuff. I loved this film. It, have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw it in theaters. Oh, gosh. I, I don't know how you feel about it, but. I enjoyed every moment of it. First of all, I thought it was what, not that you can believe that gang members who are trying to kill each other will break out into song, but I thought it was these gang members were way more believable than the <laughs> original one. The setting was wonderful. I like the Rita Moreno storyline that they put in. It sort of brought 
things together a bit. Yes, and, a um, good addition to the story. Yeah, for sure. And I, the choreography was terrific. The singing was terrific. This was a wonderful film. And you know, even though they didn't have the the English subtitles, you pretty much can figure out what they're saying. Yeah, um, it's not it's one of those things even even when you can't really piece it together, it's just it's not like it ever detracts from the story at all. It's very natural. Yeah. In it. And but by the way by what's going on and the way they deliver the lines you can put it together pretty much what they're probably saying anyway i really enjoyed this i'm looking forward to watching this again um i don't know what did you think about it craig i i really enjoyed it uh it's you know uh, leading up to its release i cannot tell you uh, how much it annoyed me every time I saw people like really, really panning it before it came out. And there's no need to remake it. It's it's already the the original movie is already a classic. But like, yeah. But even the entire musical in the movie, I mean, it's literally just a different interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, at some point in time, we have to stand by, stand back, and be like. Okay, this this story has been adapted so many times. Who cares if if a filmmaker in this era wants to adapt a story that's already been told? I mean, I've in in the past calendar year, I think I've watched four different versions of Little Women, uh, a book that's only been around for what hundred fifty years, less than that. But I've seen four separate movies, all based off of it. So it's it's you know with some movies, it's just I think. I think it's fine to remake it when you feel like you have a different a different way to present the story and there is no doubt about it that the the design of the movie the look and feel of it is just perfect um Mm -hmm. steven spielberg killed it the visuals of this movie are fantastic the choreography is next level uh obviously i think i think most of the actors fit very well there are a couple that i'm not super wild about it um but that's you know few and far between like i the character the guy who does riff um i i think he's a really great performer but he just kind of came off as annoying to me and you know, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's in it a lot. And I mean, I think that's part of the, his charm V2 <laughs> is being the leader of the Jets is to kind of be an instigator in that way. But it, it kind of got, it got old very quick for me. But, uh, you know, overall, I thought, I thought it was just such a well done movie. And, you know, I've, I've put it on in the background, haven't paid attention to it again like I did when I saw it in the theaters. But it's, it's something that I know I will watch again. Yeah. Absolutely. Times. I'll go, I'll go back to this version before I'll watch the original version again for sure. Yeah, you know, and the funny thing is, I wasn't a fan of the original version that much. It wasn't like my top ten favorite musicals, because um, I watched it within the last year. And this one, it, I, I do think they improved upon the original with with this version. Steven Spielberg did a great job. Also, whoever dresses the sets... Whoever, you know, because I always thought that would be a fun job. Okay, we need to, we need to make 
everything looked like 1959. Boy, oh boy, did they get it right. From the cars to the furniture to the outfits. To, I mean, really, really did a nice job transporting you to that era of a of a um you know New York borough in decline yeah you know in 1959 oh for sure for sure and you know the only thing that i have really else to say in terms of like in terms of the movie as a whole i i am disappointed that it obviously was a a box office bomb of sorts <laughs> um i mean it it had issues, you know, releasing in December when mm-hmm. people still weren't really going to the theaters. But then also you had Spider-Man in theaters that everyone, mm-hmm. if they were going to risk going to the theaters, that's pretty much what they're going to see. Um, it, it had a it had a bad start. I don't know if it was released in a different time, if it would have if it would have done any better just because there were so many people who were so adamant not to watch it because they didn't think it needed to be updated but uh i i think it's it's one of those things where it's a passion project for steven spielberg and if he has any other movies he wants to do like this that are passion projects i say don't don't look at the box office numbers just let him go for it because he he put together a team that absolutely nailed this movie oh absolutely yeah I heard a reviewer say that they thought maybe it didn't do as well as because, um, for, for the reasons that you mentioned and also because the audience is for musicals is usually women who between uh, in the younger age ranges and then older people. And they're the ones that have been slower to return to the theaters, yeah. that demographic. And so maybe if it was released later in the, in this year, when people are feeling a little more confident, I don't know. Maybe it would have done better. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's tough to say. I mean, I I, I see it in two different ways too. Uh, this was a movie that, as we've talked about enough, the visuals for it, the set design, uh, the the way the camera moved and was part of the story, the choreography, everything that came together made this a a truly truly special theatrical experience. Um, and something that you need to see in theaters. However, I also can see how a lot of people would just say, I'm fine watching it at home. You know, it's, it's not, it, it didn't have the big special effects and explosions and, and stuff that a lot of people that are willing to still go back to theaters for. Um, you know, it, it didn't have a lot of those elements to it, but, uh, I, I, regardless of where you, you stand on it, I mean, it's now readily available on, on Disney Plus because of the, um, because of the weird deal that they kind of have right now with, with, um, with their streaming services and stuff. It's also on HBO Max too mm-hmm. for a current amount of time. Not sure how long it'll be on there. And I'm sure it'll be around even longer and in more places after, uh, after the Oscars end up happening uh, just this weekend, because there is no doubt that uh, Ariana DeBose is winning Best Supporting Actress for her uh, for her performance as Anita. She's she's mm-hmm. won every award up to it, and she's oh, just okay. outstanding. She is. She's excellent. Anyway, yeah. The movie, so. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, the, anyway, terrific. So if you have a chance to see it, uh, you know, I definitely. 
I would say go ahead and yeah. definitely see it. It's my recommendation. And finally, you know, I, it's we were talking before the show, Craig, how it's been a rough couple of weeks for Disney. I mean, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, and we don't need to go into it because anybody that's probably listening to the show is aware of what's been going on. That CNBC article on Disney mm-hmm. is just devastating uh, and all that. And I, I'm so glad we have Marcy on because she is such a good reminder that there's still a lot of positive things. You know, we can go into the parks and still enjoy them. We can still find the magic and toss aside our cares and woes and just, you know, immerse ourselves in what is good about Disney. And, you know, hopefully they will sort through their internal turmoil and and all that before it starts to get reflected too much in the parks but um i think we have to remember some of the positive things absolutely and you know i i think they they've gone through quite a, a varying amount of little blunders in terms of the pr department and stories coming out and such and events happening and you know there are some decisions that have, you know, definitely not looked good from a, a parks level. Um, but like a lot of the drama surrounding Bob Chapek, this is this is bad decision making. I'll say in a very small group at the very top of everything uh, for a company that has how many employees? Eighty thousand. When you hmm. break it down over Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel, all the theme parks the studios division like everything when you break it down that much uh the majority of the people aren't aren't the cause behind a lot of the the issues that are happening with it and they are they are good people that you know they are they are trying to keep the magic alive in their mm-hmm. own ways in all their ways so um you know that's there's always going to be a couple bad bad apples in the bunch as well too so i'm you know i'm not I, i'm not saying everyone's perfect but the majority of the people that you see when you walk into the parks are are literally just trying to do their best to make sure that people enjoy the parks for what they are or the people who are making these movies for Disney plus and TV series for Disney plus, they're just trying to deliver content that you'll love. The same goes for Mm -hmm. Lucasfilm, Marvel, all of it. They're, they are trying to bring the magic to you. So it, it, it stinks that there's such a black cloud over everything right now because of the person at top and a surrounding circle around that black cloud at top. But you know, Beyond that, there's a lot of good. There's a lot under the iceberg that people aren't paying attention to. They're only talking about that little part you see at the top. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because, you know, when we do come in contact with the cast members and all that, we have to remember a couple of things. One is, of course, this none of this that's happening is their decision and their responsibility and their fault. And we have to keep that in mind and treat them with kindness and respect and all that. But also because, you know, both of us have worked for Disney in different capacities. We find, and I think this is true for cast members, all cast members, they all find their magic 
in bringing the magic to us. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is seeing is the magic for them is seeing our reactions. And so that's why we don't want to take out for upset with Disney over policies, procedures, and different things. But let's not ruin it for the cast members. Let's not ruin the cast members' magic that they experience in creating the magic and the positive experience for us. So, so anyway, so, and I think that's sort of a nice way to end, end today's show. So, yeah. So Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the different shows I'm on the Disunplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster, and you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling Connecting with Walt. And Instagram, Michael Bowling The Diz. And you can always connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives by Disney History Episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting Us Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Well, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Mm -hmm.